Welcome to the first podcast of Retailization and Goldred Research Labs. With me is Ellen Barnard, Dr. Ellen Barnard, who is a decision scientist. And we've known each other for a very long time and decided that after all these years, let's get together and just discuss what we've learned, maybe the mistakes we've made. Welcome, Ellen. I think we Thank should just start... We should start with a little introduction because I think we know a lot of people, but there's more people that don't know us. So uh, why don't you start introducing yourself? Sure. My name is Dr. Alan Barnard. I'm CEO of Goldot Research Labs. And in my research lab, we study why good people make and often repeat bad decisions. And based on the insights that we've gained, we've developed a series of apps to help you make better, faster decisions when it really, really matters. Of course, relevance to the topic that we're going to be talking about today, which is the type of mistakes that can be made by managers in distribution centers, in retailers, is that ultimately those mistakes result in them having shortages and surpluses, less sales and higher cost. So that's really going to be the topic that we're going to be exploring as a type of mistakes that people can make within within the supply chain, how those, what are consequences of those mistakes are, and simple practical tips to avoid those mistakes in the future. Great. I think it's uh, very apt this week because it's Black Friday week. Black Friday is obviously the event for uh, many retailers. And I think it's now Cyber Monday and it will last until well after Christmas. <laughs> Needless to say that December is obviously, or November and December are obviously the two months where retailers are hoping that they will convert everything they have to cash and never have to disappoint a, a customer when they come and ask for their size. Reality is of obviously different. And this is what the topic is today, how to avoid the avoidable mistakes that retailers face. My name is Jasper Zielenberg and I am the CEO and founder of Retailization and we deliver supply chain decisions as a, as a SaaS model. But that aside, I think the thinking processes behind the software that we deliver is, is what I'd like to discuss today. And I think if we look at the events like Black Friday, most retailers are currently scrambling to get as many, as many items to the, to the locations, whether they are fulfillment centers or retail shops, uh, so that uh, consumers can find what they're looking for. Now, while intuitively that might feel like the right thing to do, uh, stack them high and then sell them cheap. And what do you think about that? What, what kind of thinking is behind that? Because obviously people do things for a very good reason and they think they are making the right decision. What can go wrong in that kind of behavior? Well, there's a series of decisions that, that you make. The first decision is going to be what products am I going to be keeping inventory of in my store itself? Once I've made that decision, then how much of each of these items will I be keeping? When will I replenish? How much will I replenish? When do I change that product assortment? These are all a series of decisions. And I think the most common and generic mistake that is being made is that there's an assumption that the closest the inventory is to the end consumer, the more likely it is to sell, which makes perfect sense, intuitive sense. And as a result, Almost everybody in that supply chain is focused on pushing the inventory as quickly as possible and as much as possible into the retailers. But of course, it comes at a price because the more inventory you have, the higher your costs are, the bigger the spaces that you need, 
and a less range that you can keep. So it's finding that balance between how much inventory should I be keeping of each product that I don't have too much, but I also don't have too little. And I think that's the essence what makes it really, really tricky is that you can never forecast accurately what people will actually sell or what people will actually buy. You can never really accurately forecast that, especially at a product location. You can get pretty accurate at an aggregated level, but at a specific product location, what product is going to sell at what store, you're never going to get that accurately. And normally the forecast accuracy is pretty bad at that level. It's normally way below 50%. And that's that's the reality that retailers now have to deal with. They must understand and acknowledge that they can never forecast accurately. They are basing all their stocking decisions on these forecasts. So how much of each item to carry is based on a forecast. And now what do I do? Well, the more inaccurate your forecast is, the more you're going to be stuck with shortages and surpluses. And I think that for the audience, there's a kind of a counterintuitive part about surpluses. So why are surpluses bad? It's not just bad because I'm carrying additional inventory and I have to pay for that working capital. It's the fact that those items take up shelf space. And when they take up shelf space, it means that you are not able to carry other products that could have sold. I want to give you an example of how bad it can be. A couple of years back, we were called in by one of the largest book publishers in the world. And I said that I have a problem with returns. About 40% of all the books printed comes back for shredding, which is a pretty horrible number, you know, from all perspectives. And the question is, can you do better? Well, when you're looking at a problem like that, and it's been around for a very, very long time. And by the way, this book publisher that we were working with is by far the best in the industry. Often other book publishers are sitting at 60, 70% returns because they're pushing all the inventory out. The first thing that we did was we looked at what's the consequences of this high return rate. We had developed a simulation model and what was very interesting was it was showing that at about 40% return rate, about 50% of all the books that are sitting on the shelves will ultimately come back. So you're sitting essentially with bricks on the shelf, just occupying space and cash that you're never going to sell. Now, the audience might wonder why are there so many brick and mortar stores that have gone bankrupt over the last decade or two? That is one of the reasons. Imagine trying to make profit if you only have half the space and half the cash available, because the rest of it is occupied by stuff that will come back. And why is that such a such a major problem? It's obviously you're not getting the, the sales, but you covering, you have to cover all the costs. So so that to me is one of the fundamental problems. You have to find a way of managing the system that your forecast is always going to be inaccurate. And the question is, what can you do? Are there leverage points in the system that you can capitalize on that allows you to have very high levels of availability with low levels of inventory despite the fact that your forecast is always going to be inaccurate. I think regarding the forecast, I think when I started in in the early 90s, somebody explained to me when I was working, and this was my first job, that it is very easy or relatively easy to forecast how many T-shirts you will sell in a season. The business at that time had more than a thousand retail locations. 
there was no web shop, <laughs> but it might be very difficult to forecast how many medium t-shirts of a particular color you will sell with one specific logo on a Wednesday afternoon in one particular <laughs> shop. And of course that illustrates how difficult that is. Yet I also see that there is a lot of technology being deployed to get the forecast right. To what extent do you believe, you know, AI and machine learning and potentially other technology can actually help us to get that forecast at that extremely granular level right? Does that argument still hold? Are consumers still going to be as unpredictable? Yes, I, I think that, you know, there, there's a, an interesting inconsistency that you, that you see within not just retail, but across most industries where you look at the performance in that industry. So in retail, it would be to say, if we looked 50 years ago mm. and you were a typical consumer and you walked into your favorite store, what percentage of time did you get exactly what you wanted, mm -hmm. right? And now you fast forward 50 years later and you take the consumer and they walk into the store and you say, what percentage of time do they get exactly what they wanted? Yeah, yeah. Now, with the advances in technology and know-how, you'd expect that over time we would have dramatically improved our performance, that it should be an absolutely rare event for us to not find what we're looking for, right? So I want the listeners and viewers to just think about that. The last time they went into a retail store, did they find what they were looking for? Yeah. Well, in my case, no. I, you know, you walk around for hours and the, the size and the color that you want is just not there. And the question is, how can it be? How can it be that there's been so much advancements in technology and know-how, and yet the consumer experience hasn't dramatically improved? And yeah. the answer, I think, is, is pretty simple in that the rate of innovation has matched the rate of increased complexity. So... Every time you add additional items, and if you think about the availability of items today at a very large brick and mortar retailer or online retailer, uh, it's almost endless, right? You have hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of products that you can select from. Yeah. So constantly, in order to make sure that we always have what the customer might want, we constantly expanding the products, the range, the colors, the styles, etc. So unless you have innovation that matches that growth and complexity, your performance is actually going to deteriorate. Every time you add additional products, the probability that you'll be stopped out is much higher now. So essentially what we are hoping for is, is there some way that we can essentially improve the innovation side faster than the growth in the complexity. And at but, best, sorry to interrupt you, Adam, but I, I think there is another way, and that's just to find a simpler way. Because well, that's, of, course, that's yeah. of course the case is that they, they could be simpler ways. So I think the expectation that people have that AI is going to solve all the problems Mm -hmm. It's very unrealistic and, in fact, quite dangerous, right? Yeah. If you think about from a forecasting perspective, the, the problem is a mathematical problem, right? Is that as you are increasing the range and you're increasing the no number of stock locations, your forecast is going to deteriorate. Yeah. That is just mathematically true. So you can't have an expectation that AI is going to magically figure out 
exactly what I want to buy at any point in time because I don't even know. To what now, extent can, is, is... Can we do better? Of course we can do better, but it's not going to be that much better that we can depend completely on that as the solution. So to, if, you, if you think about, because I've, I've been around in this industry for a number of years and I've had these kind of discussions, of course, all the time. And right. I remember having a conversation in one of the, the company, companies I was working for, and I suggested a different way of working. And this was really about, um, and let's not, not too specific, but it was about responding quicker. Yeah? So responding right. to what we see in the shops and thereby increasing the frequency of deliveries so that we can respond quicker. And one of the things I, I, I suggested was that we do not send everything to the shops. Uh, that we actually, when we get a new delivery, mostly from somewhere far away, we would only allocate to the shops what was necessary for uh, a good display, make it really look good, plus what we think we could sell in the next replenishment cycle, or maybe the two, next two or next three, because we were, of course, a bit concerned that we were going to lose sales. Right. And the remark that came also from one of the senior members of the management team was that there is not a point of sale in, in the warehouse. Eh? We, cannot, we cannot sell to consumers from the warehouse. I think it's a little different now because now there's, uh, they are also fulfillment centers. <laughs> what, what I noticed then is, 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 is it's also a mindset uh, issue. It's, it is how to look at the problem. And I know that we're just raising lots of problems here. <laughs> uh, so it might not give a lot of hope to people who are listening to this, but I think it will be good to just establish that there are maybe multiple problems and one is a mindset problem. It's also- well, let, let, me give an, let me give an example of that. Uh, um, again, in the book publishing, I think most people would you know, kind of understand the book publishing side as they go into bookstores, they buy books. As what we found was a very interesting statistic. Mm. So the first order that a bookstore places on a book publisher. So a new book is just launched, you know, they get encouraged to place an order on it. That first order, it turns out that in 86% of the cases, the first order that the book retailer places on the book publisher is more than the lifetime sale of the book. Ouch. And you think, like, how can that be? Mm -hmm. Right? As this book should have a life cycle of, you know, many, many multiple years. Some books sell over many, many decades, right? And yet the first order that they place is more than the lifetime sale of the book. I mean, it, it, it can't be that these people that are industry experts can be that wrong in their forecast, right? And when you go and sit with them and you say, well, how do you decide how much to order? They have a rule that says we order three months of supply. Now, okay. yeah. it turns out what, why three months was in the old days, that is about how long it would take them to get supply. So in 1940s and 50s, that was the rule that was established as order about three months of books. Why? Because in total, it takes about three months to get the books. So it made perfect sense. Well, today, the distribution networks can deliver books on almost a daily basis just about anywhere in the US. So yeah. it's an example of how these old rules that were put in place for a very good reason just kept on staying in place. People never challenged them. And imagine if I asked you a different question, rather than asking you, how much do you think you'll sell in three months? 
I ask you, Esther, what is the most that you think that you sell in, in the next week? Right. And let's just order that, right? Now, theoretically, we could have said, what's the most that you'll sell in just a day if I can get replenished from the distribution center every day? But if we are a little bit more conservative, and, and that number, it turns out that we are far more intuitive if we are asked how much something will sell in a short period of time. And that will, that will stop us from pushing way too much into the system. And that's essentially what's happening. That 40% return rate in the book publishing industry is all coming from this mindset of, of I have to order a lot. Like you said, you know, stack them high, watch them fly is the kind of the basic methodology. Oh, yeah. Better way. But it comes at a huge. It comes at a huge cost. It's not just the fact that I'm going to be carrying additional inventory, and you know it's going to be occupying capacity and you know production capacity, transport capacity right throughout that whole supply chain that's already capacity constrained. I now am producing maybe ten thousand where I could have only produced two thousand, so it's wasting capacity and storage space. But it's a fact that. It's occupying shelf space. And most of that stuff is just going to come back as returns. Shelf space and, and, that, and cash and attention and everything else. And I think that the book publishing industry is not so far removed from the fashion industry because I just looked at these numbers actually last week before we had this conversation. The overproduction in, in our sector uh, where we are active, fashion, sporting good, is also roughly 40%. Initially, you thought, I thought it was a little bit less than that. But regardless, in a business that is $2.5 trillion a year, it is, it is waste. It is a significant waste. And we can talk about this, how can we improve? But I think we are even closer to how can we make sure we stop this because this is not sustainable. And even the word sustainable, I think, has been overused. Eh? Sustainable, ah, you know, it's a, it's a little bit sustainable. But... <laughs> Frankly, it is not sustainable. We are literally destroying our environment here. So this is why I'm so keen to see if there are, you know, simple ways and not necessarily to plug into new technology, but really to approach the problem in a little bit differently. Years ago, there was this, this company, Editex, Zara, and they, they literally blew everyone away on how quickly they could get stuff to market. And they still can. They are still highly profitable. They are opening new stores. And the trick they actually, in my view, that the trick they applied is really to abandon the old rules, as you call them, and see how responsive, in fact, they could become by in meeting the needs of the consumer. And I think recently there is even a more extreme example of Xi'an in, uh, in China. They, they have recently been uh, valued at just over 100 billion US dollars, and they are probably going to hit the 24 billion turnover uh, head top line this year. If you look at that, them and to see what they're actually doing, then yes, sure, they are a technology company and all that, and they may have some opaque business practices, as I heard them call it last week during another podcast. But essentially, their 
waste. Yeah, we're talking about 40% in the book selling industry as well as uh, the same in the fashion industry. I think they must have a, a sell-through or a full price checkout, whatever the measurement is to be productive of well over 90%, if not 95%. So business practices aside, they would be called a highly sustainable company. And I know and I'm, I'm, I'm on thin ice when I say that, but is that, could this be an example? I don't know. Of, of yeah, course. I think it's one technique that you can apply when you're trying to find out what rules to change in any system. As you go and have a look at how a crisis can be handled, what mm -hmm. rules do you have to break when you're in a crisis? So imagine you're in a retail, right? You have a very small store, so you don't have the luxury of, of keeping a lot of everything. What would you actually do? Especially considering that you can never forecast accurately. So if you have limited space and cash and you, you acknowledge the fact that you can never forecast accurately, what would you actually do? Well, practically, you would have some guess of what would sell, right? And start off with that. And then based on what people are actually buying, you'll replenish more of the things that are selling and less of the things that are not selling, right? And the faster the feedback is that you can get, the, the closer you'll get to always be able to match demand with supply. Yeah. Whereas the traditional model is spending a lot of time to try and come up with an accurate forecast and push that inventory into the store and then you always have too much or too little. So that's what Zara essentially that is constantly trying to reduce the total time from the moment that there's a demand until they can supply that demand. And the faster yeah. that feedback loop is, the less dependent you are on forecast and the, the more likely you are to be able to, re, to learn how to respond to the market itself. So in fact, when you, when you listen to, to this example and you look at how others have become successful, then shortening the lead times is one thing, but it is not everything. It's shortening the lead times to the point that you can postpone your decision. Because I've also shortened lead times once, and um, this is a good example of a mistake that can, that's a really avoidable, is in order to shorten lead times, I ask people to order later. And so what happens is we still had the typical rhythm of you know the different seasons in the business, and then uh, we would have the, the sign-off sessions and the collection calendar was rigidly stuck to, except for one thing, the orders that people wrote, they would disappear in a drawer only to come out maybe a month or two later, and then they would be sent to the manufacturer. Obviously, that is not postponing lead times. That is just delaying, <laughs> delaying sending the order. And I think shortening the lead times should really be about post really postponing the decision until you know more and you use that stuff to have at least an assortment that will convert to more cash. Well, and, and it's interesting because one of the questions that you can ask is if you want to shorten that total lead time, the total lead time is made, as you mentioned, is the demand lead time. How long do I wait before I place an order? And the supply lead time, once I've placed the order, how long does it take? to get into my warehouse or my, my retail store. How, how much improvement is really possible? And I think there, when you take any item and you say currently, when you place an order on the supply and they quote you four weeks, for example, how long do you think it actually takes them to manufacture that item 
and to transport it to your retail store. Yeah. yeah. And often that touch time is just a few hours or maybe a day or two maximum. And yet there's this four weeks that's quoted. Why is that? Because yours is not the only item that's being ordered on that manufacturer. But if somebody places an order of a thousand, when in fact they only need a hundred for the next week, of course, that's wasting that manufacturer's capacity. So if you can just get everybody to order what they need for the next week, immediately it releases a lot of capacity and that will allow them to respond much faster because their backlogs are much smaller. Whereas if you get everybody to order three months in advance, you know, the backlog is going to be three months and that's immediately going to introduce that delay. And now the items that are really selling, you can't respond to them because there's this three month delay. You can't replenish them because you've pushed all the inventory out into the, into the retailers and you, can't, you just can't respond. So that to me is always the key thing is, is, how, is it possible to dramatically reduce the, the actual lead time? For, for those that are not aware of it, when you're studying what's really possible, Henry Ford in 1926, the total lead time from the stockpile of iron ore at the mine until that ton of iron ore drove into a dealership as a Model T car, what was that total lead time? So if you think about it today, if you had a steel manufacturer like a Tata Steel, for example, that owns their, still owns their own mines, yeah. after the mine, they have the steel, the iron making, the steel making facility. They even make cars. Then they have the pressing plants, you know, then they have the assembly plants and then they have their own dealerships. When you just add up all the inventories today, you find that it's somewhere between six to nine months of inventory. So that is the total lag between a change in the market and the mine knowing about that change so that they can change the grade of iron ore, for example, that they are producing. In 1926, Henry Ford had gotten that total lead time down to 81 hours. Yeah, there was a lot. There were a lot of fewer components in this car, I'm sure, but uh, it's still unbelievable this lead time. Yeah, and it, it shows you all the way from the mine, right? So that means that if there was suddenly a change or downturn, that whole system had only 81 hours of inventory. Ah, yes. So yeah. they are so much more adaptive to be able to change, and I think that's the reality that we're facing in today's consumer goods market. We cannot really predict what people will buy. The only way that we have is, is to just be re able to respond much, much faster. Yes. And, and we have to explore, and that's hopefully what we'll do over the next couple of episodes in our podcast is to explore how can retailers and distribution centers be much, much more responsive to what is actually selling? I think Stop. that's the key. I don't know we can... I think you're right. And then we can, you know, teach about some of the stuff that we've learned and we will. I'm very happy to share the mistakes I've made and also to, to get a little bit of an understanding. And maybe we'll get some good feedback from the audience as well, which I'm looking forward to. But I, I think it, it, it might also be, even if it's just nice to track back, you know, I, I was working for a, a big brand in Europe and came across somebody who had a solution for, at least said he had a solution for something I was struggling with. And this was indeed, it was replenishment. 
And I started experimenting and got in touch with Ellie Goldratt, Dr. Ellie Goldratt, that you've worked with, worked with extensively to the point where, where the upside in the business from simply being more responsive and changing the rules, asking the questions, the results were phenomenal. Uh, the, the, the increase in the top, top line and at the same time reduction of the investment in inventory um, was so high that it almost was too good to be true. The problem, of course, is when we started selling all the stuff that the warehouse was empty after a little while. So that was a lesson I learned. You should not just go ahead and do this. You should think about what happens when you are successful. So that's, if, that, if anything, that that's a lesson. So um, what I would like to achieve in this is, is not only preach about how to uh, maybe do things differently, but also acknowledge that it isn't simple. It may be simple, but it certainly isn't easy. Right. Uh, and there are many reasons why businesses fail. I think the retail industry in the last, uh, definitely the last few years uh, from, uh, from COVID and then there've been all kinds of other events in, in Europe. This, this has made for an extremely uncertain uh, business. And consumers are now not just unpredictable in what they will buy, but also where they will shop and even how they will shop because they've got all the means. You know, you can click on anything these days and it has a buy button. So this is where I believe it is now is the time that we need to look for this new way. And I'm hoping that the simplicity that Dr. Goldratt used to advocate, if we can somehow tap into some of those learnings, and maybe you can help with that on, on, on where would his insight maybe lead us. And from a replenishment perspective, we have a, a piece of software that has the thinking processes built in, but there are many other ways that can be investigated on how we can speed up the cash to cash cycle, how we can convert products and not after nine months, but maybe after, you know, six weeks. Well, I think it's uh, Dr. Eli Goldratt always encouraged us to apply the scientific method to everything that we do. And it's also something that I've learned from studying decision-making is that we don't actually learn from experience. We learn from experiments. But to learn from an experiment, you need fast feedback. So think about you touching a hot stove plate, right? You learn immediately not to touch it. But what if it burnt you a day later or a week later? How long will that take? <laughs> Learn, you know, that this excruciating pain in your finger was related <laughs> to you touching this thing. So I, I think that for me, the, the general theme here is to give up on the idea that with AI or whatever other mechanism, we're going to be able to perfectly forecast the demand for products at, at a retail location. You, it's simply mathematically not possible. So if, that, if you have to give up on that idea, what are you going to do? And uh, what we're going to be encouraging the audience over this podcast series is find those experiments that you can go and try that could have a significant impact on reducing shortages and surpluses. And in order to do a good experiment, you need to have clear metrics 
You need to get fast feedback about what's working and what's not working. I, I think as an example of that is we introduced this by saying we're dealing with Black Friday at the moment. And if you think about you managing a store that is currently experiencing the spike in demand of Black Friday, what is it that you can do over the next couple of days that will help you to reduce you losing out on all the potential sales? And there's essentially two very simple solutions that you can try. The first one is to understand that the customer tolerance time is not always zero. So if somebody walks into a store and they are asking for something, then have a system in place where you can capture that and get it to them as soon as possible. I did a test recently here in Las Vegas where I'm at with 10 retail stores. And in all 10, we picked items where we knew they were out of stock. And we spoke to a shop assistant and said, I'm looking for a large blue you know, dress shirt. Uh, you don't have stock at the moment. Uh, can I give you my name? And you contacted me back when you found one. Eight out of the 10 stores never contacted us back because there was just a system. Yeah, yeah. Deal, right? And today, yeah. if you think about online shopping, it should be as easy as here's the terminal, go in, click, click, click. We've ordered one, it'll be at your house or come back to the store within three days. That should be the norm. Yes, some stores do offer that, but by far the majority do not do that. So I think that's the, the first thing is if you know that there's a demand, you know, the constraint in the su supply chain is the number of customers that want to buy your product. You know, don't waste them. If they want to buy something, then help them buy it. Make it as simple and as easy for them to buy what they're looking for. So I think that's the first part of, of practical advice. And it can also be, of course, applied to other periods as don't have the assumption that the customer tolerance time is zero. Is as soon as you say, are you willing to wait? And maybe I have to give them an incentive, maybe a, a offer a small discount, but get the product to them as quickly as possible. But then you need a supply chain that is reliable so that you can make reliable commitments. Interesting you said that besides the fact that we are both wearing a blue shirt, we did not agree this. But when I went shopping recently, and I needed another few shirts. I found it very interesting. These guys actually did what you said. They had had the block of the, the shirts or the size they had available. And they did not have the colors on hand at the colors that I wanted, but they had samples and I could make sure that the item that I wanted actually fit me from just fitting the block. Right. And they then sent me uh, the three shirts within days, I can't remember exactly, but it was quick. For items like these, eh, the staple products, I think the retail industry has learned that the tolerance time is indeed not zero because otherwise all these workshops and marketplaces would not have any business. The unique selling proposition for a retail store, however, is of one of them at least, eh, besides experience and whatever else, and that the that you can get the item immediately. So what if in what what in the case that you are a consumer and you actually want the item now, what can the retailer do to make it more likely, a lot more likely 
that the item is actually available? Are there rules or other assumptions that people are making? So you, you might have a you might have a you might have a store that gets uh, typically monthly deliveries or weekly deliveries. I would not monthly. Uh, you you want to say, hey, well, why can't we switch that over to daily deliveries? Right. So we are only ordering what is actually selling in the store, especially during a, a, a peak period like Black Friday. That's the first thing I would do with my suppliers is anybody that's on weekly deliveries, I say, listen, just for the next week, can we go to daily deliveries? Whatever selling, I'm going to place an order on you and you bring that in today so that we, that the worst case scenario is that we miss out on, on sales for a day long. But as soon as we see what's actually selling, because it's very hard to predict what's going to sell during this period, right? right. What's going to be trending. But as soon as I'm getting feedback that, I've, that I'm selling a specific item, I want to be able to replenish it on a daily basis. That and makes sometimes, yeah. sometimes twice a day, sometimes three times a day. We've had customers that have gone to, to two and sometimes three replenishments a day just to make sure that they don't lose out on any sale. And then it comes back to that saying, being able to be confident with a with a, a customer that walks in and says, sorry, we don't have your size or your color, but we can have it this afternoon or we can have it tomorrow morning. Can you come back tomorrow? Can we ship it to your house? It's just to get fast feedback about what's actually selling and then getting the supply chain to quickly respond to that new signal that you're getting. Okay. So one of the directions for a quick fix actually is to increase the number of replenishment per time. Uh, interesting, you said that there's a, a fast-moving consumer goods shop around the corner from me, and they get eight deliveries a day. I asked them, and uh, of course, the shelf lives for those items are a lot longer than for uh, some of the fashion uh, businesses that we work with. So, but still, they have eight replenishment as, as uh, rounds a day because they want to bring their inventory down, and but. simply don't have the stockroom space because the rental is expensive in this part. So that could be one direction and it actually, it fits perfectly with what Dr. Goldratt used to tell and that is uh, you only need to have what you think you can sell uh, until the next delivery. Right. And um, of course, he then added uh, that you can be paranoid and, and make it for the next two deliveries or the three deliveries, but don't become hysterical and put it for the next 20 deliveries. And I think if you're looking at the industry that we're working in, you know, inventory turns, um, a metric that is used very often. How often do you sell your average inventory of maybe four or even five is considered really good. But if there are only 50 or 52 weeks in the year, then it means that you, with a stock turn of five or inventory turn of five, that you actually have 10 weeks of stock. I know that the argument that comes back to me regularly is, yeah, but I need the stock, otherwise I can't fill my shelves and it doesn't look good. So, of course, that is, that is a problem. You need to fill your, your space. But then I think you may have another problem that you're trying to solve with a su supply chain uh, solution when, in fact, you have a real estate problem or a marketing problem or something else. So it's interesting that from a supply chain perspective, you should only have what you can sell, what you think you can sell until the next delivery. So increase the deliveries is, is, is a very easy fix during uncertain times, I would say. Well, and there's two ways to, to deal with that. The one is that, you know, the, the shop is only carrying a small fraction of the products that's available. So yeah. uh, you can expand the range, which gives consumer access to more range. 
but you can also change the display. So for example, if you think about books, you know, if you don't have enough space, you have to show them with just uh, the back cover, right? Whereas yep. you could also show them full out so somebody can see the full and that will that will increase the the, the awareness that people will have for that. So you, you, you then have more options in terms of display. Yeah. It's interesting when I've, you know, in my career across different companies, the number of items that used to end up on the shelf compared to the number of items that were being designed and sampled and even thought about, what ended up facing the consumer was just a mere fraction, eh? less than 10%, a lot less than 10% of what people are actually working with in terms of sampling. So from that perspective, I think, you know, being more data-driven and responsive to what matters is probably also important. How do you narrow what you are looking at? And uh, because everybody wants to have the latest outsold, a new fit, a new fabric, uh, different colors, uh, seasonal patterns, uh, etc. And before you know, you have a whole fruit salad of an assortment again, of which not 20% drives 80% of the sales, but maybe only 5% drives 80% of the sales. How do you actually discipline a business to only focus on what matters without, of course, becoming boring, because that's another problem? It's a real challenge. And I think the the best solution is you have to generate a variety because you can't accurately predict what people will actually buy. Yeah. But then don't make the mistake of putting out three months or sometimes four or five months worth of inventory of things that you don't know is going to actually sell. So yes, create a variety, but put only, you know, what's the most that we think will sell in a week out there. And, yeah. and those ones that are actually selling, double down on those, and those that, that are not selling, back off from those so that you don't keep on pushing things that are not selling at all. So I think that that's the, as yes, you need to, to do experiments, but you need the ability to quickly react as soon as you get feedback about what's actually selling and what's not selling. Right. The worst case situation will be that I produce this very large range and I'm producing a lot of everything and I push this out into retail. And that's that's where retailers get into real trouble compared to saying, yes, I have a large range, but I'm only, my worst case exposure will be a week's worth of inventory or maybe two weeks worth of inventory that I'll be stuck with and not three months or four months or five months. No, that makes sense. You know, I often wonder why businesses have not moved to a much more responsive model. When I was working at this big brand, the success was so phenomenal, yet there was no transformation in the business as a result of it. Uh, of course, me being a retailer, I saw every square meter or square foot return much more cash Yet there, there was a, some inertia. There was a reason why uh, people did not change. Now, in the case of very big brands, I think that there is a good reason for that. First of all, I think if you're working for a product marketing company, then you are not necessarily working for a retailer per se, and maybe just someone who makes money through retail, but also through many other ways. And the other thing is that in the supply chain in our industry, you have disconnected links and these disconnected links, they are actually almost maintaining a model that should really change. And what I mean by that is that people are measuring their success 
not necessarily on the success of the supply chain as a whole. Now, one of the one of the biggest, most important metrics for this company was the size of the order book. And I can imagine that if you go to a responsive model, the size of the order book will reduce significantly, maybe even divided by two. And if that's a, a metric for business analysts and shareholders to look at and say, whoa, our uh, order book has just been reduced by 50%, then I think there may well be, you know, some, <laughs> some noise uh, on the stock exchanges. How, how do you actually make, make a big transformation in an, inside an organization when you come across conflicting measurements, conflicting metrics? The first thing is to acknowledge that people are good, they're trying to do the right thing, but maybe they, they are incentivized by the wrong measurements, right? It was very interesting in that book publishing case when we asked people, well, why are you ordering three months? They all blamed each other. You know, the, the, the retailer said, well, the publisher forces us to order three months. The book publisher said, well, the, the printers order force us to order three months because of the pricing that they give us. And, and everybody's pointing the finger. So our way of solving the problem is if you could create a simulation model of that whole environment and you could show people how the current rules are negatively impacting everybody, right? It's not that some are winning and some are losing. Everybody's losing. If I have a manufacturing constraint and I'm I'm producing stuff that's not needed now, that's a major waste for me. So how can I set it up to get my customers to only order what they actually need? Now, there are a few options here because, of course, the manufacturer would like to kind of have confidence that they're not going to be running out of work. So they can get a commitment from downstream to say, you know, I'm going to give you a commitment to produce X amount of items. I can't tell you yet what color or what size it is, but I'm giving you a commitment for this amount of items. And I'm only going to tell you the exact size and color once we know what, what the consumers are actually buying. So that could be a way of overcoming that. But any of these changes Today, with assimilation technology, you can actually introduce that change and let people see what the impact of that change is going to be, uh, because we are looking for those changes that will be a win for everybody and not a lose for everybody. So change management is easy then. It's just telling people what's in it for them, showing them what's in it for them. You have to show it and prove it to them, right? People are not going to make changes that they believe either will not benefit them or will actually hurt them in the end. It's, a, it's a, a very simple thing. For example, who do I buy from? If I'm the product company, who do I buy from? Do I yeah. buy locally and pay 10% or 20% premium or do I buy from a foreign entity where I might get a better price? And it's, it's a very simple decision if you're only looking at the purchase price. It's a much more complicated decision when you look at it from a total cost perspective to say, well, when I buy from a foreign country, I have to pay cash up front I have to order probably four or five months worth of inventory. If there is a quality problem, I'm going to be stuck, right? So suddenly being able to model all of that and say at the end of the day, ordering locally, even if I pay the 20% premium, is still lower cost because of the total costs that have come down. Yeah. And that's where simulation is very, very useful because it, it can show us how a change in one part 
can impact the whole system, all the stakeholders in that system. It's interesting. I think we should almost dedicate a another episode just to metrics, just to measurements, uh, just an anecdote from my past experiences. I say we, whenever we I'm talking about a company I used to work for, but of course we were trying to do our best and you're right. People are good. So I, I think essentially nobody goes into the business and says, how can I screw up today? But uh, really, how am I going to do my best? And in this case, there were uh, two people responsible for a certain category. There was a buyer and a planner. It's very typical in, in, in our industry. And the buyer, uh, one of her key metrics was what we call IMU, initial markup. So basically the incoming margin before you sold it. And it had to be at a certain level. And then there was a balanced scorecard where one of these was weighted quite heavily. So she would obviously do her best to get a good deal and purchase the product at a very good price so that this IMU was high. Her colleague, the planner, was responsible for the what we call the maintain margin. At the end of the season, after all the product is either sold or marked down or written off, eh, this is we always had some of that or sent back to maybe some of the big brands, then he would be valued more on the markdown rate, for example, is one of his, his biggest metrics. Jointly, they were responsible for this whole category. But of course, these two metrics can conflict and they did because she once got a really good deal on buying an additional number of t-shirts so the, to get the price down. She went for it, but exactly that number of t-shirts had to be marked down at the end of the season, which of course hurt him. So here is one person getting a bonus and the other one getting at least a conversation at the end of the year, which is uh, very interesting. And I've seen this happen in many organizations, including, you know, logistics or other measurements. So cost per unit shipped is another good one. Maybe we should just talk about that separately. You have many other examples uh, of, of, of metrics that you can you know, maybe highlight here, because I think this is a very interesting topic. No, I think that the purchase price one that you mentioned is, is often a, a very common one in retail, right? So mm -hmm. what you want to do is you want to find a metric that contains all the components that penalizes the person for taking the wrong action. So if I think about how we measure productivity, for example, right? Yeah. You measure operational productivity as the gross margin that you get your sales revenue minus total variable cost divided by all the operating expenses. Now that that is a ratio, which means if you take an action to improve gross margin, but it increases operating expenses even more, yeah, right, and you're hurting yourself. Then your productivity is going to go down. Yeah, or, or if you're trying to reduce operating expenses, but it's going to reduce gross margin even more, then again it's auto-correcting. So you never want to measure somebody on just one thing. You want to measure them on these two things that they're trying to balance. And, you know, profitability and productivity is coming from growing the output or the sales faster than what you're growing the inputs or the cost. So you should have both of them. And the same with, you know, return on inventory, right? It's the gross margin over your inventory. So if you are reducing inventories and it's reducing gross margin, then that's a bad idea. If you are increasing gross margin, but it increases inventory more than the increase in gross margin, that's a bad idea. So that to me would be 
what we want to encourage is to have these ratios that has built into it the trade-offs that people often make. And if you're only going to measure them on one of those parameters, of course they're going to keep on making that decision because they don't feel the trade-off. They are not hurt by the trade-off. You want to incorporate that, but uh, I think we said that we will dedicate at least one episode on what is it. Yeah. Let's so do that. Because, yeah, I think this goes this this goes very far. You know, it's obviously also very easy to 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 estimate cost and to reduce cost because you can hit that goal quite easily. But to see the impact of and that cost reduction initiative on the rest of the business is often much more difficult. So uh, let's do that. Well, I think as a summary of, of one of the key points that we wanted to make in this first launch episode is that, you know, it's all about doing experiments and getting fast feedback from those experiments. So you have to design your your supply chain in a way where you can get fast feedback about what's actually selling, what's not selling, and constantly are doing these experiments to learn much faster. Just give up on the idea that there's going to be a magic wand one day that will allow us to accurately forecast what people will buy, where they want to buy it, and how much they want to pay. The only way to learn is through experiments, constantly doing experiments on the selling price, on the product range, et cetera, and, and trying to learn as, as fast as you can from that. And I think uh, challenge the rules and challenge the assumptions is another one you know, where people are stuck in a certain pattern, you know, with the, the, the seasonal business, for example, is a very, very good example. You know, every year there's two seasons, four seasons, six seasons, whatever. Maybe we should not necessarily think in terms of seasons because some items, they just are not seasonal and can right. be decoupled. Well, so, and it, it can create even interesting behaviors. As, as I remember, and I'm sure you have the same experience where, somebody places an order for three months and they sell out in the first week. And this is considered a good thing. We've sold out, right? Wow, yeah, we've sold out. But you've just just lost almost three months of sales on the higher sales velocity item, right? And because the system is unresponsive, you can't react to that. And and that that to me is the, the essence is those things that are actually selling, how do you fully capitalize on them? And those that are not selling, how do you make sure you haven't incurred too much cost and then you're stuck with things that are not selling? And the, the best way to do that is just to have these very fast feedback systems. Very good. And then I'm, I'm going to talk about measurements because my head is now on the measurement thing. And I think that's probably that, that should be our next episode. I think we should do that. I think Dr. Goldred used to say, tell me how you measure me and I'll tell you how I will behave. Uh, I will never forget that. And there are plenty examples. It can be really interesting. Is there anything that you'd like to share before we finish this one? Because the the, the audience will then say, okay, we've had Black Friday because this will be launched after. What do I do in the next event? I've written down a few things. Well, for Black Friday, it's those two things. It's just, uh, you know, negotiate with your suppliers if you haven't done that already to get daily replenishment. Yeah, and only replenish what's actually selling, you know, yeah. to minimize that. And then the second thing is don't assume that the customer tolerance time is zero. Put in those systems that allow them to place an order, allow you to make a commitment about when they can get it. And even if you have the system, go and check if the stores are actually using it. Because I got the impression that, ah, you know, 
even if they had the system and you say, can I place an order with you? Okay. You know, it's like a big <laughs> for it, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I just want to give you my business, right? So even if you have them, I would highly encourage the retailers to actually go and audit their stores, you know, anonymously and see if the, the shop assistants are actually capitalizing on the ability for a consumer to first of all, check, do we have stock at any of the close close other retail outlets, you know? And if you do, maybe they're willing to drive there or you can bring the stock back to them and they can pick it up tomorrow. The, the whole idea is to treat customers that want to buy your product as the scarcest and the most precious resource. Don't waste it. Ultimately, that is the final resource. You got all, everything in everything in order. Everything is working smoothly. If there's no consumer who comes to buy, then that will be your biggest constraint. Alan, thank you very much. I enjoyed this. I'm looking forward to the next episodes. I hope that we'll get some feedback so we can learn also, get some feedback, Luke, on how we can make this more interesting and uh, add a few more uh, relevant topics. Very good. Add, add, add a few more relevant guests, right? There's a lot of people out there that's got some remarkable insights and have figured out things that are actually working. So it would be great to learn from them as well. Exactly. Looking forward to it. Alan, thanks. Ciao.